0: I've been talking about it for a few months, and uh, I-, I think it's, there's a lot more to this series than, than kind of what the title would dictate, as sometimes we think about the next gen, you think, oh, this is going to be a kid's series, it's going to be a kid's message. The whole point is just to get me roped into kids' ministry. I think there's so much more to the idea of the next gen than just that. Uh, as Brian talked about tonight, we're doing something special. We're calling it the family birthday celebration. Uh, we're going to baptize some kids. Uh, there's a middle schooler and an elementary student who are ready to kind of walk their faith out through baptism. And we're really, really excited about it. I love baptisms. I celebrate baptisms uh, whenever we get a chance to do it. But I I think it's incredible that there are some young people that are ready to kind of take that next step in their journey, in their faith. Uh, They actually recorded a testimony video that we're going to show tonight that I think is going to be funny but also moving to see that God can even grab the heart of a young person and that they'd be willing to take a step in their faith and say it doesn't matter who's around, it doesn't matter who's going to seize it, I believe in Jesus, and I want everyone else to know. Now, I don't know where you are on your faith journey, but that might be your next step. But part of of the reason we chose the name journey is that we kind of feel like faith isn't a destination. You don't just show up and, hey, I'm there, and I'm good, and I can just go on with my life however I want. But faith is a journey, and all of us have a next step to take. And and you may have been baptized years before, and and you may be serving God and engaged in ministry, but, but maybe you haven't. Maybe you can't come to faith in God, but you're not really sure what your next step is. I would encourage you, this might be your next step. Baptism is simply a way to say, God, I trust you, and I believe in you, and I'm ready to tell everyone else. It's not like a confirmation of your faith. It's not like if you don't get baptized, you don't really believe. It's simply saying, I believe, and I'm ready for other people to know that I believe, and I want to take that next step. So if that's you, and your next step is baptism, I encourage you, sign up. Sign up today, find me after service, find one of the pastors, let us know. We would love to begin to walk that process out with you. There is nothing I enjoy celebrating more as a pastor than watching someone take their next step in faith, and in particular, their next step in baptism. Now, I know it looks like a feeding trough, but that is uh, what we use for our baptismal. I got thinking after Brian's joke this morning about how hot it was last week. You know, one week, I think I'm just going to set the baptismal up and preach from the baptismal because it was hot last week. <laughs> uh, but this week, uh, we've got some extra fans in here and it's feeling a little cooler, thank God. Uh, so we're gonna dive in to this idea of helping the next gen win. Uh, in our church, we're kind of a new church. We've only been around for about a uh, little less than two years, um, but we're kind of known as the family church, as the married with kids church, if you would. Uh, our, our ratios are kind of like sometimes some weeks one-to-one. Like we have as many kids some weeks as we do adults sitting in here. And I think that that's phenomenal. Like I love kids. I love that we're connecting with young people. I love that you're bringing kids and that you have kids and that you keep having kids. That's, that's fantastic. And that builds strong marriages. So So keep at it. Um, But (laughs) I'm really enjoying myself this morning. I don't bet you guys. Um, But I, I I think sometimes we get so wrapped up in the idea of just married with kids that we lose the idea that our church is so much more than that. And I think we need to be more than just a married with kids church because there are single people that attend. And there are empty nesters that attend. And there are like high schoolers that attend. And they don't feel like they're really a kid anymore, but they're not really an adult yet. We have a church that kind of spans the generations. And that's really where I wanted to go this morning with this idea of helping the next gen win. That we are a church that kind of spans generations. And I think that we need to be a church that spans generations. And more than that, I think there's a plan For churches that do that, that span generations, and that if we can kind of adopt this idea of what it would mean to help the next gen win, that we could see something significant happen, not just in the lives of the people that we're helping, but in our own life as well. Because, and my argument this morning is going to be when we help the next gen win, they don't just win, but we win as well. So, We're going to talk about helping the next gen win. And to do that, we kind of have to define what generations are. You probably have heard of generations before or the the generations. We're going to go through and do a little review and and hopefully uh, kind of get you guys up to speed as we kind of start this talk of what generations are. So I'm going to show you some pictures. If you know the answer, you can shout it out, and we'll give you the answer if you don't. So here's the first picture. Do you guys know what generation this is? I heard someone say it the greatest generation. This is considered the greatest generation. Tom Brokaw kind of coined that, that, that idea, the greatest generation, and, and he coined it uh, for this reason. This is the generation that went into war not because they had to, but because they wanted to, but because they saw a group of people being oppressed, a human people that were, had their human dignity removed and, and kind of beaten out of them and tortured out of them, and they said, that's not right. We're gonna go to war. We're gonna sacrifice. We're gonna do what no one else is willing to do, not because we have to, but because we want to. And they call this the greatest generation. Uh, Here's another one for you. You guys know what this one is? Baby boomers. Baby boomers. Do you guys know how baby boomers got their name? No joke. People from the war came back. They were really excited to see their spouse, like really (laughs) excited. You know what I'm saying? And about nine to 10 months later, there was this boom of babies. This is the baby boomer generation. You may have been able to identify yourself with one of these generations. Maybe this is the one. Here's uh, the next one. (coughs) You guys know this generation? Generation X, the Gen Xers. This is actually the breakfast club, if you know that or not. But this is Generation X. This is the generation I'm from. There's a lot that's been said about this generation, a lot that probably will be said about this generation. uh, But I'm particularly fond of this one because that's the one I'm from. And who doesn't like the breakfast club? Uh, Let's go to the next one. Here's the next generation. You guys know what this one is? everybody, everybody knew that one, hands down. Young people staring at cell phones in the midst of like a beautiful background and a beautiful day, and we're locked into our screens. This is the millennial generation. Uh, This is also generation Y. This is the generation that that, that, um, is kind of coming into this tech phase. They didn't start with tech, but it kind of came into their life at a really young age, and they grew up with uh, having technology at their disposal. This is the millennial generation. And here's the, the last one. you guys know what this generation is? Gen Z, uh, you know what they're actually calling this generation, the coin phrase for this? iGen. No joke. They're actually calling it iGen because this is the first generation that's growing up with tablets and smartphones and devices having access to the entire world in their pocket. Their, their like, use and kind of interaction with technology is far beyond what we would ever th- think or imagine because it's at their disposal so frequently and so liberally. This is considered the I generation. This generation doesn't have dates around it as the rest of them do yet because they're still kind of defining it. But th- there's a very good chance that your children might be a part of this generation, that my daughter, Isabella, might be a part of this generation. I can tell you this. She can navigate my iPhone and my tablet better than I can. <clears throat> so this is this generation having this kind of access to technology at their disposal. Now, when we look at these generations <clears throat> and we kind of think, okay, so I... I can kind of identify myself with one. Maybe you're from the baby boomer generation. or Maybe you're like me from Gen X. Maybe, do we have anyone from the greatest generation? Do we have anyone from the greatest generation? I'm kidding. Kind of. I hope there's someone here from the greatest generation. But you can identify yourselves with one of these generations. And as you begin to think about it, um, like, okay, well, who are we really talking about with the gen- generations? Are you saying that we all have to kind of invest in, in Generation Z and the iGen? Or maybe you're hoping and praying, maybe he's talking about millennials, and we're all just going to sit down and talk about millennials for a few weeks. Wouldn't that be great? <clears throat> I think when we kind of wrapped this idea around helping the next gen r- win, that it's got to go beyond even what our expectations are, even beyond the idea of helping young children that are in Generation Z, or the iGen, where it's kind of all wrapped up in themselves, and going beyond the idea of helping even uh, Generation Y with the millennials. I think when we're talking about generations, and this is kind of the definition we're going to use as we go through the next four weeks of this series, when we're talking about generations, generation just isn't Gen Y, generations, when we talk about it, isn't Gen Z. Generations, as we're going to talk about it, is anyone that comes behind you. So think about it this way. Anyone that comes behind you, no matter where you are in life, anyone that comes behind you, that's how we're defining the next generation. Anyone that comes from like a season behind you. So whether you're you're 40, 50, 60 or plus, there are people that are coming behind you that you can be investing in that we can actually help them win. Or maybe a different season of life. Maybe you were single for a number of years and you recently got married, but you still have all of these single friends that are still at the same age. You're kind of in a different season and some of those friends are kind of coming behind you into that season. You can take some of your life experience and invest in that generation. So as we're talking about helping the next gen win, the next gen is defined as anyone who's coming behind you. Anybody, any group, any generation that is behind you and coming up. Now, as we're talking about winning... Um, we really have to define what do we mean by winning? Like, Jim, you're doing really good. You're funny today. I'm enjoying the message. It's a lot cooler in here, so everyone's kind of at ease. But what do you mean by win? How are we going to help the next gen win? And I tell this to our leaders all the time that you have to define what a win is, right? Defining a win gives you a goal. Defining a win shows you how to kind of gauge your success. Defining a win gives you an objective. It gives you something to shoot for. It gives you something to aim at. And if we're just saying we can help them win... Well, what does that really mean? But if, if, we have to, if we're going to define the win, if we actually sit down and say, here's exactly how we want to help them win, it gives us as, as, a, as people, it gives us as a church, something to shoot for and something to gauge our success as to how to help the next generation win. Now, some of you might not even like this idea. Some of you might be here and you may think, I've never wanted life in, in, in my life, in all of my history. I've never wanted anything. Like, I I, I wouldn't want to to think that I could help anyone win. You don't know my life and you don't know my past. And and I'm here only because someone invited me. And I'm just hoping that the church might have the answer for that. The truth is we all have different definitions of winning. The truth is we all have a different idea of what it might mean to win. My dad's generation, this is the baby boomer generation, they grew up winning uh, with this idea of, of winning. That if you get a good education, you get a good job, you'll get a good house, you'll get a good spouse, you'll get some good kids. And then you'll get another good house and another spouse. And really the whole idea at the end was whoever has the most toys wins. And you may have lived your life with that kind of definition. That I just have to accumulate and amass and have houses and cars and maybe wives and, you know, just some good kids. I don't need a lot, but just a few good ones. And if I live at the end of my life with all those toys and everything I've amassed, then I've kind of won. And as you've begun walking that out, as you've tried to win at that kind of, kind of idea of life, what you've realized is, he with the, he with the most toys doesn't win. And there's this kind of ultimate dissatisfaction with life, in dissatisfaction of living your life that way, to just amass and accumulate and gain, realizing, I really haven't wanted life at all. Or maybe you're from my generation, Generation X. We kind of grew up with the idea of, if I work hard, I get to play hard. And I'm just going to work so that I get to play and the harder I work, the harder I get to play. And it's just kind of this sixth cycle of living for the weekends. We work five days, we work really hard, and we get a lot of stuff, and then we go out and we enjoy ourselves on the weekend, and it's our time. And it's just this, this simple cycle that goes over and over and over, and you never really feel like you're winning. Because no matter how hard you work, you can't enjoy all of it with all the time, you, with the little time you have. So we end up working to, to live so that we can work again. And I never really feel like I'm winning. Now, no matter where you fall on that generational kind of map, we all have a definition of what it means to win at life. What I find most interesting, that whether you're from the greatest generation or you're all the way up to the I generation, when we talk about winning at life, what it mostly comes down to is this. I need to improve my standard of living. I want to improve my standard of living for my kids. But really, as we're going to find today, is that's not what winning is at all. But isn't that kind of how we feel? I can't tell you how many parents I've talked to, young parents, new parents, and, and they say things like this, I just want to give my kids everything I didn't have, right? I, I wasn't playing travel sports a lot, and I wanted to, so I'm, I'm going to make sure my kids get the opportunity to, to do that. I, I didn't get a car when I turned 16, and I want my kids to have a car, so I'm, I'm going to do whatever I have to to make sure at 16 I can give them a car. Or, or maybe it's this, and this is true maybe even of some of you today, I grew up without running water, and I wanted my kids to have running water, so I hired a plumber, and we got running water. And when we think about winning, it's always about kind of improving our standard of living. Now, I'm not knocking those things. We should have running water. It's fine if you want to give your kids a car. If you can afford it, give them a car. Oh, that's awesome. It's fine if you want to play travel sports. Have fun at it. I'm not demonizing any of those things. What I'm simply trying to do is making a point that when we think about, imp- about winning at life, it most often comes back to the idea of how do I improve my standard of living? And I want to challenge you today that I think it goes way beyond that that winning at life isn't about improving our standard of living, that helping to help the next-gen win, to help them succeed at life, instead of improving their standard of living, what we need to do is give them a standard for living. For living. We need to provide them a standard for living. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to, we're going to look through one passage of Scripture, and, and I'm going to give you some ideas afterwards of how we can apply that. But I think this whole idea, and it's really an idea that, that we kind of founded this church on, that we can work and we can help and we can support the next generation by giving them a better standard for living. And that by giving them a better standard of living, their standard of living naturally improves. So we're going to look at a passage of scripture. It's a passage you might be familiar with. It's from the book of Psalms. I'm going to hold up this book. You may not know what this is, especially if you're a millennial or from the I generation. This is a Bible. The Bible you might be used to is like the Bible app on your cell phone or maybe Bible Gateway online, depending on what generation you're from. But this is the actual Bible. Um, you can get a copy in the back if you'd like. It won't look as nice as this, but, but that's, you know, it's a Bible. If you open to the middle of your Bible, in the middle of your Bible is the book of Psalms. Psalms is, is like songs or poetry written to God. It's songs of praise. It's, it's songs that kind of have wisdom in it, but it's written to, to this kind of rhythm almost. And in, in the middle of Psalms, we're going to look at Psalm 78. It's one of the longest Psalms ever written. The longest Psalm, and this is just kind of trivia, the longest Psalm ever written is Psalm 119. But in Psalm 78, this man named Asaph writes, and he gives us this nugget of wisdom of how to provide a standard for living. He sits in the courts of King David. King David was the second king of Israel. He was like this great king. There's so many stories that kind of go around his life, like David and Goliath. If you're not familiar with David, I encourage you to come back in August We're going to do a whole series on David and his life and share some really incredible stories that you may have never heard of before, even if you've been in church your whole life. That's August. So today we're going to look at Psalm 78. We're going to begin reading at verse 1. Asaph tells us this, my people, listen to the words of my mouth, things our ancestors have told us. In another translation, it says this, things our fathers have told us. And, and this might be true for you, it might not be, but statistics say that about half of you grew up in a home without a father. So you might be sitting here thinking, well, I don't even have a father. How do I know what my dad told me? How do I remember what, what my father told me? I grew up without a father. There's no dad. He didn't say anything. The other half of you who did grow up with a father, there's a percentage of you who grew up with a dad that never talked. Men are given to silence. They don't like to talk. They like to be quiet. And that's a whole, whole other message, really, a whole other week's Week and week of messages. But you grew up with a very silent dad who didn't say anything. He didn't teach you anything. You just kind of grew up learning life's hard knocks on your own and figuring your way out through it. And then some of you are here, and your dad did speak, and you're spending the rest of your life trying to unravel all the things he said and make sense of it. But Asaph is telling us that our generations, that our fathers, they have told us things, or they should be telling us things. They should be speaking to us things that we can remember, things that we could hold on to. Well, like, what kind of things should we be listening to that our fathers are saying? He's saying that, that our ancestors have talked. Our ancestors have spoken. They have told us things. What has your dad told you? What kind of things do you hold on to? He says, we will not hide from them. We will not rather hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation. We're not going to take these words of our ancestors and kind of keep them and hoard them. We're going to continue to tell the next generation, tell our kids and have our kids tell their kids. This whole series kind of came from this idea where we can pass on the things that we've gained from our ancestors, the things that we gained from our fathers and pass it down to the next generation. Let me ask you, what do you tell your kids what kind of things as a dad do you tell your kids? And if you're not, you should tell your kids something. You should talk with your kids, not at them, not to them, talk with them. When you talk with your kids, what do you tell them? Brush your teeth. Say yes, ma'am, and no, sir, and, and all those. What kind of things do you tell your kids? And if you're not sure, ask them. Ask them what, what, they, what you tell them. Ask them if they remember the things you said. My, my little daughter, Sophia, she's in preschool and they did a project this year for Father's Day. They, they kind of wrote down the things about dad. And one of the questions, what does your dad always tell you? You know what she wrote on that form? Put your shoes on. No joke. That's the one thing my four-year-old daughter remembers from her dad. Put your shoes on. Now granted, she needs to put her shoes on. She runs around barefoot all in the winter. She runs outside in her socks. Like she just needs to put some sneaking shoes on. But what caught me was, that's what she, like if I were to die today, that's how she's going to remember her dad. Not I love you, not you're beautiful and you can do anything. Like, Put your shoes on. What do you tell your kids? Seriously, dads, moms. What are you telling your children? What kind of things are you saying? What kind of things are you pouring into their life? Asaph tells us, these are the things we should be telling them. The praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. His power and the wonders he has done. Now, this was written in kind of the, the middle of, of the Old Testament history, in the middle of the Bible. There's all this history of the Old Testament, and the things Asaph is talking about is all of those incredible things that God has done beforehand. But, like, how The people of Israel were in captivity in Egypt as slaves. And God sent these plagues and and set them free from slavery. And then he took them literally through the Red Sea. And then into a desert where he provided food and drink miraculously. All the way through to the promised land. Like like these incredible stories that have been written about from our ancestors and their ancestors and their ancestors. Like all of these amazing stories. And if you're here this morning and you're kind of new to church, and you're saying, that's ridiculous. I don't believe any of that. Here's what I want you to know. That's okay. I'm not asking you to. They did. They believed it, and they continued to pass it down and pass it down and pass it down. But here's what you need to know. All of those stories of deliverance, all of those stories of provision, those are all foreshadowings of what I do want you to believe in, and that's Jesus. Those are all foreshadowings of what Jesus would do, how he would come and deliver his people, how he would come and provide a way of life, a better life. We say this all the time, that following Jesus will make your life better and make you better at life. All of those things that the, these Old Testament people were talking about from their ancestors, this is all a foreshadowing of what's to come with our Messiah, Jesus. And Asaph says, when you tell these people this, when you need to tell them about God, you need to tell them about what he done what he has done. He says in verse 5, He commanded our ancestors to teach their children so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they, in turn, would tell their children. And they, in turn... We tell their children, and by doing so, we're helping the next gen win, and the win, af- and the generation after that, and the generation after that, by talking about the things the Lord has done, by remembering His good deeds, by remembering His power. And what's interesting here is he talks about four generations. There's grandparents telling their children that are now becoming parents. And those parents are telling their children. And he says if they continue to pass this down, those children are going to tell the children that aren't even born yet so that those unborn children can tell their children. And that's how we help the next gen win. They were providing their children a standard for living, not simply of living. And then he said, the reason you want to tell them this, there's a result that happens. Then they would, if you begin to tell your children, if you begin to pour into your children, if you begin to speak with your children, reminding your children of God, reminding them of his ways, reminding them of his power, reminding them of his deeds, then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. Now, when I read these words, I thought this is exactly what we want to do as a church. We want to help the next gen win. And when it comes to help the next gen win, we want to provide them a better standard for living rather than improving their standard of living. And Asaph here, he mentions three things, right? He says, we want them to put their trust in God. We want them to not forget their deeds. And we want them to keep his commands. What I found really funny is when we're dealing with our kids more often than not, we kind of start at the bottom of the list, don't we? We kind of start with, with, with keeping the commands, rather than trusting in God, right? We want to see the behavior changing. You need to change the behavior and you need to do this and you, you, need to, you need to kind of live this way. We're all about changing the behavior and keeping the rules. But Asaph said, it's going to start differently. When you begin to teach them about God and his ways and, and, and how to remember God, what happens first is they begin to trust. And as they trust in God, then they begin to remember his ways and remember his deeds. And then they'll begin to keep his commands. But we have to start with trust, more often than not, we're always looking on the outside, on the behavior. They've got to behave well. And if they behave well, then I believe that they're going to trust God. And that's not the way it is at all. That's why we've seen so many kids kind of grow up out of church and turn their back on God and turn their back on church. Because all we've been worried about is keeping the commands. And Asaph said, that comes last. The trusting in God comes first. They will trust in God. And by trusting in God, they'll remember his ways, they'll remember what he said. And then they'll want to keep his commands. And when it comes to trusting in God, let me ask you, do, do we really trust? I mean, do, do we really? When we, when we think about trusting in God, are we really trusting? I mean, really, it's easy for us to trust when things are going well, aren't they? Like, I got a, a, you know, a raise at my job or the promotion, and I got the house I wanted, and my wife and I are having a baby. Like, it's easy to trust God when things like that are happening. But, but what about when, when, when something awful happens, like your spouse drops a bomb on you? and says he or or she fell in love with someone else and they're moving on? What about when your kids fall ill, like really ill? It's not that easy to trust God then. What about when when your finances have been stretched and stretched and stretched and stretched, and and when you feel like there's nowhere else to go, your car breaks down? What about when you're raising your kids and every ounce of pacing you you feel like you've had they kind of step on and they demand more and they demand more and they demand more until you feel like you're ready to break. You see, it's really easy for us to trust in God when things are going well, but when things aren't going well, we kind of throw that stuff out the window, don't we? It's like, oh God, where were you in this? How am I supposed to trust you when you let something like this happen to my life? I find it really interesting that when we kind of get that pressure, we forget his ways. We forget what he's done. I mean, we can sit here and make a list a mile long of all the things God's done in our life and how he's, he spared us or saved us or blessed us or, or did this incredible thing. And then one thing doesn't go our way. It's God, come on, where were you? How can I trust you? See, we've all had times like that. And the first thing that kind of goes out the window is our trust. Asaph said, we will trust him first. You start with trust. And then we move to keeping his commands. And w- what commands is he talking about. You see, in the Old Testament, there are so many commands, you couldn't remember them all. There's over 613 commands, 1,613s. Do this and don't do this. Thou shalt and thou shalt not. There's the big 10, right? The 10 commandments that everyone knows and everyone's supposed to keep. And that's hard. Like, how am I supposed to know that? How am I supposed to keep all those commands? Let, let me encourage you. It gets easier. Don't, don't focus so much on the Old Testament there. Focus on what Jesus said. When he was asked about all the commands, he said, really, there was only two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, mind, and strength. Oh, yeah, and love your neighbor as yourself. And every other one of those other commands, all those 613, the Big Ten, the whole thing, they all kind of hang around those two ideas, don't they? And what's amazing is you can begin to kind of work it out in your mind and in your life. They really do. The other day, I was sitting with my daughters in the pool, and I was asking about what they're learning in church and BBS, and they said, you know, we were, we were told we shouldn't lie. Well, Why shouldn't you lie? Like, why, why would God call that a sin? I don't know, but we shouldn't lie. So I began to explain to them, Well, when, when I lie, if I were to lie to you, more often than not, it's to protect myself. It's, it's, it's to protect me. So when I'm lying to you, am I loving you well? They're like, well, no. Well, who am I loving if I lie to you? Well, you're loving yourself. And that's why God calls it a sin. Because God said the most important thing in the world to do is to love God and to love the other people. Jesus said, a new command I give you, that you will have love one for another. You see, that's the commands. That's keeping the commands. When we begin to understand, wrapping our head around this, that that, that for so long we've kind of lived in a world that's like me-centered, right? Everything else in the universe kind of wraps around me and my wants and my desires and my needs and maybe me amassing all of my toys so I can win at life, whatever it might be. But this whole thing, this whole idea of Christianity, and if you're new and, and you're like uncertain. Because uh, everything I said before doesn't make sense because that's not how Christians you know live. That's how they should live. By loving you and loving God. By putting other people before themselves and keeping his commands. By honoring their wives in a good marriage. By being good employees. By driving down the road and not flipping the bird when someone cuts them off in traffic. By loving other people. You see, all of this, all of these ideas that we're kind of sharing, all of these ideas that, that, that kind of tie even into the New Testament, this is all about creating us a better standard for living. Not a standard of living, a standard for living. For living beyond ourselves. For living perhaps for other people. For living for, perhaps for a bigger idea. For being a part of something that's bigger than who we are and what we could do alone. That we would be lovers and students of this incredible book and begin to live and model that in our own lives. As we wrap up this morning, I just want to give you a few big ideas as we talk about how to help this next-gen win and how to really apply this to our lives. Here's what I want you to start. If you're going to help the next-gen win, the first thing you have to do is choose to help. And I know that sounds kind of elementary. You're thinking, really, that's an application point? You can do better than that, Jim. Let me put it to you this way. Some of you have come in here, and you've spent the majority of your life, maybe more than half of your life, living for you. Living uh, always concerned about your needs and your desires and what's best for you. Your challenge this morning is to shift away from living for you to living for something else, for living for someone else. To stop living in a, in, in a, in a, in a world where it's kind of all about me and all about this guy, right? Who's this guy? The challenge is that you would make a choice this morning to start living for someone else, to live for the next generation, to be able to pour in maybe some of the things you've gained, your wisdom, your resources, your time, into those who are coming up behind you. And you might think to yourself, well, why would I do that? That sounds ridiculous, Jim. Here, here's what I know about all of us, is that we weren't created to receive love and keep love. We were created to receive love and give it. We were created to be conduits. And God wants to pour something through you He wants to use you. That's why you've been created. We all wanted to do something significant with our lives. But the truth is, we're never going to do it alone. We do it when we work with people. We do it when we work with the next generation. We do it by helping and by loving other people. And if you want to do something significant, if you want to make a difference, you need to make a choice today to choose to help the next generation. Because when you choose to do that, it's not just them that wins, but it's you as well. The next thing is you need to write it down. You need to begin to write down some of the things you're learning in life. I'm like an avid note taker. I'm always pulling my phone out in the middle of meetings, conversations, and it might seem rude, but I have a very bad memory. At least that's what my wife tells me. I I don't really know. I forgot. You'll get that in a minute. She has a really good memory. She doesn't forget anything. I don't. I take notes all the time. As a matter of fact, she, she never takes notes. She probably hasn't taken a note this morning and it hurts my feelings a little bit. <clears throat> but I have to write things down. I use my, I, my, that notes app all the time. I'm always writing something down and I'm trying to remember it. I write down when she loves me because it, it's really important for me to see and to look at. Because sometimes, you know, I forget things and I wonder if she loves me. <clears throat> but I'm always trying to write something down. You need to write things down. The things you've learned in life, your experiences in life, what you've gained in life. And, and, and you may not feel like, like you you're like gained enough life experience that I have all this wisdom. What You've learned things now begin to write down what you've learned and begin to pass them down to the next generation. If if you're not sure where to start, I'm going to give you five things that you should begin to take note of in your life. We're calling it your big five. Here's the big five. Ready? Your life, your marriage, your family, your work, your church. So I'm going to focus and I'm going to take notes on on my life as a man. I'm going to take notes on my life as, as a husband. How am I taking care of my wife? My life as a father. My life as an employee or an employer and my life as a volunteer, as a servant, as a follower of Jesus. Now, if you're not a man, you can just substitute that for woman. I get that. Maybe you're here and you're thinking, but I you know I don't, I'm not married. I don't have kids yet. That's okay. Begin to write down the things you know now. If you're single, begin to write down the things your life experiences and what you remember so that you can pass them down to the next generation. If you're in college, write things down that you can pass down to somebody who's in high school. If you're in high school, write down some of the things that you've experienced in life and pass them down to someone in middle school. Even if you don't feel like you have all that wisdom yet, write down things from your family that you would never want to do again. Never going to say that to my kids. I'm never going to do that at home. And you begin to pass them down. Write down the things in life that are, that these five things, take note of those areas, write them down and begin to pass it down to the next generation. We all have a part to play. Whether you're 20 or 30, whether you're in college or high school, whether you're, you're in, in like the golden years, you know, you're 60 and plus, we all have a part to play and it will make a difference. You choose to help, then you write down your life's experiences and you have them. You know what wisdom comes from? Wisdom comes from not making the same mistake twice. I remember listening to my dad and my grandfather tell stories when I was younger. They would always tell me the stories that were funny, right? The bad ideas. And I thought they were hysterical. But you know why I looked up to him and thought he was wise? Because he didn't do those things anymore. Yeah, they were fun. But he had gained wisdom. And I had learned from his mistakes. And I had learned not to do those same things again. No matter where you are in life, there is experience and there is wisdom that can be passed on to the people coming up behind you. What are you passing on? Write it down. And finally, be the vision. Sometimes things in your life don't go the way you want. Sometimes it's really hard to tell people to trust in God. It's really hard to, to tell people how to live their life the right way. Some, and those times, you just learn to be the vision, be the example, begin to live it out in your own life. The last, up until about six months ago, the last year of my life, I would have told you is the hardest year that I've ever had in my life. <clears throat> and I'm pastoring a church and there were there were weeks I had to get up here and think, how can I tell people to trust in God when I'm feeling the way I'm feeling? How can I tell people how to have faith and, and hold on when I feel like I'm ready to give up and I'm at the end of my rope? And here's what God began begin to speak to me. Just begin to live it. You don't always have to say all the right words. Just begin to model. Model the man who trusts in God even when he's at the end of his rope and he's ready to break faith and ties with God. Model the man who trusts in God even when things don't go his way. He believes that there's a higher calling and a bigger purpose and a bigger plan at work. Model the man who doesn't give up when things get tough. Even though you feel like you're ready to, model the man who says, God, I trust you. No matter what's going on in my life, I trust you. You know what begins to happen? You begin to trust You begin to be that man. You begin to be that woman. You begin to be the person that says, regardless of my experience, regardless of my circumstance, regardless of my situation, I will trust in you. Sometimes you just have to be the vision. Sometimes you just have to begin to walk it out. You have to begin to be that example, even if you don't feel like it. And when we begin to do that with the people underneath us, do you know what they begin to see? Men and women who love and trust in God regardless of the challenges that life can throw at them. That's what our young people need to see. That's what people my age need to see from people who are older than us. That's what middle schoolers need to see from high schoolers. We all have a part to play. We can all pour into, we can all help the next generation win. But we have to write it down. We have to choose to help, write it down, and be the vision. If you want to help the next gen win, this is the way to do it. And I could tell you story after story of of people's lives, of people's experiences, where they've actually done this and they begin to see it. But this week I heard this incredible story of a young man. His name was Taylor Allen Strickland. He grew up the son of Tim and Tony Strickland. Tim, the dad, he had a vision to help men, to help men be better men, to help men be leaders, to help men be fathers and husbands and, and, and just improve their life. And he would talk openly about this kind of stuff with his son, about helping men improve, about helping men be better men. And as Taylor grew up, Taylor kind of grew up with this vision of, well, I want to help the people kind of behind me, the people younger than me. And at 15 years old, he decided, you know what? I know I'm a high schooler now, but I I want to go and I want to work with middle schoolers. And he joined his church's middle school ministry. And he became a small group leader of a bunch of sixth grade boys. Now you need a a lot of energy and patience to be a, a small group leader of sixth grade boys. He did. And he began to pour into their lives and pour into their lives. They became close friends. Taylor became this mentor to these kids, so much so that when these sixth grade boys, four years later, went into 10th grade, they decided, we want to do the same thing for the people behind us that Taylor did for us. And these six boys went out and became small groups leaders of other sixth graders. And the cycle began to repeat, generation after generation after generation. And fast forward a few years. Two years ago, Taylor died in a car accident. A young man not even 24 years old. And at his funeral, every one of those sixth grade boys that he mentored as a small group leader stood up and gave a eulogy of the influence that a 15-year-old boy had in their life and how it turned their life around. Over 300 people gathered to celebrate the accomplishments of a young man who wasn't even 24 years old. Because somewhere along the line, Taylor got this vision inside of him that it's not about me. But it's about what I can do for the people behind me. What can I leave for them? How can I invest in them? What can I share with them? And this young man changed a group of boys' lives that changed uh, groups of boys' lives underneath them. And therefore, he helped the next generation win. We can do the same thing. We have the same opportunities here to pour into the next generation. It doesn't matter who you are, what stage of life you're in, there is opportunity. Our, our like, vibrant children's ministry, we have so many kids in there. If you don't want to like, be a rule keeper and be the guy who is always yelling at the kids, go and be a small group leader. If you're goofy, go and do worship and do skits and have fun. If you don't like any of that and just like food, go serve snack. Invest in the next generation. Maybe you don't like, like elementary and young kids. That's okay. We have a middle school group that's growing. And we have middle schoolers now that are now turning into high schoolers and need to start a high school group. You want to get into like the thick of things? You want to deal with, with, with problems? You go talk to a middle schooler in a high school, trying to deal with their emotions and their life and all the, the nonsense that goes on in schools. You don't like it there? What about college-age kids? What about singles? Well, maybe you're from the golden years. What about becoming a small group leader and investing in young married couples, helping them, uh, mentor them with their finances and their life and their leadership? There is an opportunity for every person here to invest in the next generation. The question is, will you choose to help? We have an incredible opportunity coming up in just three weeks. We're leading a sports camp over at Hamden Academy. We're going to have an opportunity. We have over 50 kids already planning on coming, and we're expecting more. We have an opportunity to do something, to invest in this next generation, to help them win, and we need help. The question is, will you choose to help? There is an opportunity for all of us to invest in the generation behind us. And that is not only the heart of God, it is the heart of this church to see the next gen win. The question is, will you choose to do it? If you would, would you write it down? And would you begin to be the model and be the vision for those behind you? Let me pray for you this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you, God, for this incredible story that was recorded in Psalms. I thank you that there is so much wisdom in it, God. I pray for all of us as men and as women, as, as we kind of live our lives, For as fathers, God, if we struggle with, with speaking with our kids and the things that we say to them, God, that we would even now begin to think ahead of time of the words we want them to remember and how we want to, want to share and what we want to pour into their life. I pray that we would begin, God, even with this very simple step of telling them about God and about his deeds and about his ways. And I pray we would always focus, God, on the heart of the issue that we would trust in you first. I pray that this would be the start, God, of, of us kind of getting this new vision for helping the next-gen for pouring in to the people who are coming behind us. I pray you'd give us the wisdom to do it, God, and really the courage to do it, because there are going to be excuse and excuse and excuse and reasons why we shouldn't. But I pray you'd give us the courage to do it. In Jesus' name, give us an incredible day, an incredible week. Amen.